All right. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, sweetie. Okay. I'm going to read you. This is your first kind of test for the morning. I just want you to switch your brains on. I'm going to read you the beginning of three really, really, really exciting books. And I want you to do a little vote for me which book you would like to keep reading. I'm going to read you the very beginning of three really exciting books. And I want you to tell me which one of those books is so exciting that you just wish we would keep going. Does that sound all right? Everyone listening? I'm trying to keep them secret. Some of them you may well guess. Let's see here. Ooh, really? Interesting. Here we go. In a hole in the ground, there lived a... A hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat, but it was a hobbit hole. And that means lots of food and lots of comfort. Does that sound pretty good? Wow, tough crowd. Next one. Now, I know that I'm not an ordinary 10-year-old kid. I mean, sure, I like doing ordinary things. I like eating ice cream. I like riding my bike. I like playing ball. I have a PlayStation. Stuff that makes me ordinary, I guess. And yet, I feel ordinary inside. But I know that ordinary kids don't make other ordinary kids run away screaming in fear at playgrounds. I know that ordinary kids don't get stared at wherever they go. What do you think about that? Kind of interesting? Yes. Ready for this one? You ready? 24 large uncooked prawns. 8 grams of unsalted butter. 2 tablespoons of olive oil. 3, yes, Three cloves of garlic, two large red chilies, two tablespoons of chopped flat leaf parsley, a juice of one lemon, sea salt, a tablespoon of extra flat leaf parsley, you know, just to get a bit risky, and two teaspoons of finely grated lemon zest. Don't you want to know what comes next? No. Are you kidding? So which, which one of those three books sounds really, really, really interesting to you? The one about the hobbit and the hobbity hole in the ground? Hands up. That would be my choice. No? What about the one about the kid who feels ordinary on the inside, but people run away from him in fear whenever he comes on the playground? Or what about the one with the prawns and the four cloves of garlic and the extra chopped leaf parsley? So one of them was obviously, what do you call that? A cookbook. The other one was Wonder by R.J. Palacio. That's a really, really good book. And you know what the last one was, or the first one. What was it? So three really different books, right? One of them about a world that really isn't like ours, about a group of people that don't really exist called hobbits, but it's a kind of a fun adventure story. Another one about a boy who feels ordinary on the inside, but... Something about his appearance makes people really fearful. 
And then another book about what? What was the last book about? Cooking. So which one of those would you find to be the most exciting book? A book about hobbits? A book about kind of real life or our world? Or a book about food? Let me ask you this. If you went back 2,000 years ago and you asked a king, a ruler, what would be the most exciting kind of book or the most exciting kind of scroll for you to read? If you were having a hard time sleeping at night and you wanted someone to come and read you a story that was going to work your mind and excite your senses, do you know what most kings or most emperors or most rulers would have said? They wouldn't have said an adventure story. They wouldn't have said a myth. They wouldn't have said a drama or a bit of theater. They would have said a list. The favorite form of writing for kings in the ancient world were lists. And that is kind of what a cookbook is, isn't it? What I read you before was just a list of all the things that you put in to a dish of garlic prawns. Why would kings love lists so much? So, for instance, uh, example, in Esther chapter 6, there's a king, the king of Persia, a really powerful king named Ahasuerus. He can't sleep one night, and he calls one of his servants to come and to read him something in order to help him go to sleep. And you know what he gets him to read? A list of all the things that had happened in the king's palace over the previous two years. Really strange sort of thing to be read, wasn't it? And did you hear the first reading today? King David. King David, a wonderful king. He wanted to find out how many men there were in his kingdom who could fight. And so he sent one of his greatest generals out from one end of the land to the other to go count the number of people that there were and to, boys, and to give him the list of how many people there were in each province. It's a really strange kind of thing to do, isn't it? It's a strange kind of thing to be fascinated by. I love good stories. Lists don't interest me too much. Why would kings love lists? Well, can I give you one other clue? Yes. Because I want you to tell me in a second, why is it that kings would love lists so much? So in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, the king of Babylon, named Nebuchadnezzar, he finds a very, very flat plain, a flat field where lots of people can gather. And in the middle, boys, in the middle of that flat plain, he erects an enormous statue, an image of him. Do you know how high it was? 28 meters high. 28 meters. So that's well past this roof. That would probably be about another 10 meters, maybe, beyond the roof. A huge statue that looks exactly like King Nebuchadnezzar. Why do you think the king would want a statue of himself that big and in a field where everybody could come and see it? What do you think? That's, that's a pretty great answer, actually. That's, people could come and they would look at the statue and, oh my goodness, that must be an important man. I think that's just about 100% right. Why else do you think? To show how powerful he was. I think that's really getting much, much closer to it. 
that this statue is supposed to represent who this king really is. But do you know what kings would do to these statues? They wouldn't just make statues that looked like them. They would make statues, and then on all of the free space, on the side of the statue, they would write... They would write a list. Statues were huge, huge monuments, or almost like huge pieces of paper, where they could write down all of the lands that this king had conquered, all of the other kings that this king had defeated, all of the money that this king had received, all of the territories that this king had swallowed up within his kingdom. So these statues weren't just statues to try to tell people, wow, this king must be really big. These statues gave people the opportunity to come and, oh my goodness, look at all of the things that this king has accomplished. Now there's kind of something funny though about the story in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar calls all the people from all the different lands to gather in this great big field, to gather around the statue that he's created for himself. And the Daniel chapter 3 gives a list of all of the people that are called to this area. So Daniel 3 says, the king sends out a message for all of the satraps and all of the prefects and all of the governors and all of the counselors and all the treasurers and all the justices and all the magistrates and all the officers from all the provinces to come and to worship the king when they hear music play. And it'd be kind of easy, wouldn't it? for Daniel chapter 3 to say when they hear the music play, right? Or when they hear the band play, or when they hear the orchestra play. But that's not what Daniel 3 says. Instead, it says, bow down and worship this statue whenever you hear the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble. Can you guys guess, why is it that in Daniel 3, they give this list seven times? of all of the people who are supposed to come and worship the king and all the instruments that are supposed to be played whenever people are supposed to bow down. They're kind of, adults, you surely get this. They're having a bit of a dig at the king, aren't they, in writing this. You like lists? We'll list all of the people that come from all the different provinces. And you like lists even more? We'll give you all of the different instruments that are supposed to be played. It happens seven times across the chapter that they give all these lists of people and instruments. So it's kind of like kings have a thing about lists, right? So we'll just give you more and more and more lists. So what are lists supposed to say? Lists are supposed to say about a king, these are all of the things that this king has accomplished. These are all of the people that this king has conquered. These are all of the lands that this king has taken over. This is all the money that this king has received. These are all of the soldiers that this king has in the army. And that's why what David sees when he sends out the word for his general to count all of the fighting people within his nation, that's why that was a bad thing for David to do. David wanted to feel confidence in the number of people that he had in his army. Instead of, what should David have had confidence in instead of the number of fighters that he had in his army? He himself, maybe not quite, because the number of people that are there in his army, these are all people who are serving David. 
David seems to be thinking, if I have enough people in my army, then I'm unstoppable. What should David have had confidence in instead of the number of people in his army? The actual people? Maybe. God. Because God helped 12 people defeat an army, for instance, in the book of Judges. God helped a single person in the form of Samson defeat almost an entire nation in the book of Judges. So that's where David's confidence should have been. So you see what kings do when they're compiling lists. These lists are all about them. This is what I've accomplished. This is the number of people I have in my kingdom. This is the amount of money that I have in my treasury. These are the numbers of fighters that I have in my army. So lists are all about the king. Now, moms and dads and grandparents, isn't it good to know that those days of politicians who only do things to inflate themselves and to brag about them, isn't it good to know that that's just a thing of the past? Right? So what do you think is going on? When Augustus Caesar, who had conquered more territory than anybody else before him, who ruled over a greater kingdom than anybody who had lived before him, he wants to prepare a... not an army. He wants to prepare a list. And the list is of all of the people in all of the lands that he's conquered, in all of the territories that he's absorbed, he wants a list of all of the people that are part of his kingdom. Some of that was probably about money. He wanted to make sure that a lot of tax was coming in. But also, he wanted this stuff written down so that people in the future could look back and see about King Augustus. Oh my goodness, look how many people he ruled over. Look how huge his land was. So Augustus Caesar, his his dad, Augustus Caesar's dad called himself the king of kings, the lord of lords. And so Augustus Caesar called himself the son of the king of kings, the lord of lords. So he was already a little bit full of himself, wasn't he? He already thought that he was pretty hot stuff. He already thought that he was easily the most important person in the entire world. And so he wanted a list to be made. We call it a census. He wanted a list to be made of all the people in his kingdom, all the territories that he had conquered. Now he thinks that he's doing this list to inflate himself, to make himself seem so much bigger. But the Gospel of Luke tells us two things. You listening to this? Gospel of Luke tells us two things about this great big list that Caesar wants to make. The first thing is that Caesar thinks that this list is all about him. He thinks this list is being written down so that future generations can look back and see, oh my goodness, how great was Augustus Caesar. But the Gospel of Luke tells us that the real reason why this list is being made is so that one man named Joseph 
and one woman named can travel a dangerous journey all the way to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem because a prophecy was made 400 years before that out of this tiny village in Bethlehem, the real king of the world, the true king of kings, the real lord of lords is going to be born. So Caesar thinks that this is all about him. Who is it really about? Caesar thinks that this list is going to be written down so that generation after generation after generation in the future are going to look back on this time and see, oh, how great was Caesar. But really, this is being written down so that 2,000 years later, we can gather in a place like this and say, this was really all about Jesus. But there's another reason that Luke is telling us that there's something a little bit different going on in this particular list. Caesar thinks that what makes him great is the number of people that he has at his command. Caesar thinks that the thing that makes him great is the territory, the land that he's conquered, the amount of money that he receives. Caesar thinks that what makes someone great is power, right? Caesar thinks that the ability to order for more money to be received, to order armies to go and fight, to order for people to be killed. He thinks that that's what really makes him powerful. Luke is telling us something very different. Luke is saying, it's not the armies you have. It's not the money you've received. It's not the people in your kingdom. It's not your influence. It's not your power. It's not your strength. That's not what greatness is all about. Jesus is just about to be born. And he's not going to be born in a huge palace. He's going to be born in a small stable. He's going to be rested in a manger. He's not going to be draped in silks and showered with gifts from all these different servants that bustle around the palace. He is going to be wrapped in humble, rough cloths. Listen to what Jesus says, though, at the other end of his life. So this Jesus who's about to be born, just about, or when he's just about to die, this is what he says to his disciples. He says, the kings of the Gentiles, just like Augustus Caesar, they lord it over their subjects. But this isn't the way it's supposed to be with you. The greatest among you must be the smallest. The leader must be the one who serves. Who is greater? The person who sits at the table and has food brought to them? Or the person who humbly brings the food and sits it at, sets it at the table? Jesus says, you think the important person is the one who sits at the table and is served. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, the truly great person is the one who does the serving. Just think about the words that most immediately jump into our minds when we hear the word God. When we hear God, we think great. We think strength. We think power. We think bigness. We think might. 
I kind of think that the way that we think about God an awful lot is kind of like the way we think about kings, or the way we think about presidents, or the way we think about Caesars. What it means for God to be God is to be great, is to be big, is to be mighty, is to be strong. We even sing songs about that, don't we? My God is so... That's the term that comes to our mind when we hear the word God. We think what it means for God to be God is to be great, is to be big, is to be powerful. But what did Jesus show us at a time when Augustus Caesar wanted to show the whole world just how powerful he was, just how great he was, just how big he was? Jesus showed us that what it means for God to be God is to be humble, is to be not the greatest, but the smallest. What it means for God to be God is to serve, is to give, not take, is to give up his life for others, not order that others give up their lives for him. I know I can't make it, but you know, if I were Caesar for a day, and I had the ability to, I don't know, wave a staff or wave a wand or something and make one thing in this world disappear, I think just about all of the songs where we talk about God's bigness and God's greatness and God's strength and God's power, I kind of think that they should all just go away. Because what they're doing for us is they're making us think about Caesar when we hear the word God. Instead, this is the time of year when we remember what the angels told the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. The angels told them, to you this day, a child is born. He will rule justly over his people. He will be the king of kings. And this is the sign for you, that that king will be found in a stable, in a manger, wrapped in humble cloths. What does it mean for God to be God? What does it mean for God to be great? It means for God to be the smallest. For God to be the servant. It means for God to come and give his life for us instead of ordering us to give up our lives for him. But of course, that means that we do give our lives to Jesus, doesn't it? Because if Jesus showed us what it means to be great, then it means that we all too have a model of what it means to be great. It means to serve, to be the humblest, to be the most generous, to be the one who gives instead of demanding, the one who gives over their lives for others instead of demanding that others give their lives for them. Can I pray for you really quickly? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are sorry that we have made you in our image. We're sorry for making our God look too much like Caesar. And we're sorry then for making our lives look too much like Caesar's as well. We're sorry for thinking that greatness means bigness and power. We're sorry for not seeing that the life that you call us to is a life of humble service, of self-giving, of vulnerability, 
of service. Loving God, in this Christmas season, help us fashion our lives after the image of your Son to serve Him as He served us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.